from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Mary Helen Brown. For the first 20 years of Mary Helen's life, she grew up near a small, historically black college associated with the Texas A&M system. Then she became a Baha'i. After that, Mary Helen finds herself in Samoa, Hawaii, Guam, Saipan, the Navajo Indian Nation, and Africa. I started the interview by asking Mary Helen where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Grew up in a a rather small, historically black college campus area. My father worked there, and for the first 20 years of my life, a part of Texas A&M system. And that's where I went to school from nursery school through a bachelor's in college. After that, I moved with my family to Houston, Texas. Okay, and Mary, what were your interests growing up? Well, I enjoyed reading. I enjoyed, there were tennis courts, uh, about eight of them, about two blocks from my house, and my friends and I played tennis a lot. I never was that good, but we enjoyed ourselves and uh, went to the library because the college library had a a children's section because they taught teachers a little library science so that they could have libraries in their own school. And I enjoyed playing very much. We were free and easy there because it was such a small rural community because the university was the only thing there and everything was devoted to its uh, interests. I remember Dad never took the keys out of his car. We didn't lock the door at night unless we were going out of town. It was a different era. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. A very, very open and, and nice place to grow up. And what was religious life like growing up? Well, uh, basically, it was a Christian community in that we didn't have denominations. We, I went to Sunday school. And it was usually taught by the wives of some of the faculty members, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the students had morning and evening vespers, which were just a, basically a Christian without Baptist, Catholic, and all that, though they had some clubs that the students belonged to, the Methodist Student Movement and the Baptist Student Union and other things. But the services that were held at um, 11 in the day and at 7 at night were non-denominational. That's what we did. I went to Sunday school every Sunday because they had that. The students came, some of the students came from the college, and then my classmates and I were always there in our little section, and then we would join in with the adults at the uh, closing time when the the choir would sing and we would have 
beautiful music. I imagine, Mary, that you grew up in a very segregated time. Very, yes, because I was born in the last in, in the Depression era. I didn't know that it, that was what was happening because we were kind of just separated from that as well because the college was functioning and we had food and I could go to the garden and mom would send me to go and pick up something from the garden and I think it would be a quarter and I'd get a couple of bunches of greens or something else you needed. Milk was and bread was delivered by students who worked in the dairy because they learned how to do that as college students and the bakery. So things were not harsh. I can't remember it being a time of lack. It was just the way things were, and it was comfortable for me. Did you have any interaction with white folks? They would come on occasions, and that was because they, the governor would come very infrequently. I saw it one time, and then the Houston Symphony would come you know, on a regular uh, annual visit and do, do concerts. But your interaction with white folks was pretty positive then? Well, it was positive because then we had neighboring small towns like Hempstead and Walla, Texas, where we would go for some purchases, some clothes and, and uh, for clothes or some groceries that we needed. They were regularly polite. They were still, it was still a segregated situation. If we went to the movie, there was segregation in that uh, there. But on campus, we had weekend theater, and that, of course, was no segregation. But if we went off campus to a movie or something. But most of the things there were around the college. We had a lot of in, uh, college activities with the uh, Southwestern football. And we had uh, license programs and concerts and things that we could enjoy as children going there because it was entertainment. We had our own little thing. We we took music lessons and we gave our little programs to the college students because they were captive audience because they had to come. It was just a cozy little place for a child to grow up, I would think. And what was high school like? It was very interesting in that it was such a small number, and we had the largest class. The school I went to was a laboratory school created so that the students majoring in education would have a, a opportunity to teach and be supervised and guided by staff in the educational department. So it's a laboratory school that a lot of colleges and universities have, huh? And that's what I went to from kindergarten through 12th grade. And we had a big class for the laboratory school because we had 12 when I graduated from high school. And that was a big class because the numbers were often from 5 to 7 or something like that, not quite 12. But ours was a larger class. And the students that attended were from, they were the children of the, staff members or the faculty members at the campus. And there was a, a large farming community around. 
and they were did very well. The farmers did, and they and their children went to school at the same place. So it was enlarged by the fact that we had a farming community as a part of our uh, the school's enrollment. And you said you went to college. Uh, yeah, because that was where I just stayed there and and just went to the stayed at home and just went to the college buildings instead of my high, my little school building. And what did you study in college? I majored in biology. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a pre-med course. Did you have aspirations to be a doctor? I thought about it. Yes, I did. At the time when I graduated from college, uh, the funds to go to medical school were not there, and there was a limited openings to go. But very soon afterwards, it was opened up, and I went instead to physical therapy school at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. Actually, I went into physical therapy, but I could say when I first got out of college with the BS in biology, I was hired to teach. We had moved to Houston at that time, just that same summer, and I got a job that fall in Baytown, Texas, the home of the big Humble Oil, which is Exxon and Enco, you know, the big oil company. And the reason I say that is because there was such a high uh, tax rate compared to other places that the salaries were very good, and I enjoyed that part. But because I didn't have enough experience as a teacher, I started a course at Texas Southern University in, in a master's in education, and I got that in the summers and weekends going to school. And that came about within three years, and then that's when I finished that in on August, and the next December I entered physical therapy school. So that was not a long time. So why did you switch careers after getting your master's in education? Because I did not feel that that's what I wanted to do, is to, to teach. I did get to teach biology and general sciences and things like that. Initially, I taught the first grade, which turned out to be a love affair because they were beautiful children, and there were just 19 of them, so I enjoyed that experience. But um, I liked the sciences a lot, and so I wanted to do something. The coach at the college had taught a course in health, and uh, physical ed or something like that, it appraised me of, of physical therapy as a good career opportunity. And that's what I decided to try. And that has been very rewarding because it paralleled. I became a high soon after I graduated from physical therapy school because I met someone during my work in, in this institution, which turned out to be the Texas Institute of Rehabilitation and Research, that I was hired to be a part of prior to graduating from physical therapy school. They were recruiting PTs in the area, and I was recruited, so I had a job in PT before I got finished, but uh, before I finished my course, I should say. And it was very rewarding because it had such a high standard there where I worked. And there I met Elsa Norden, 
a Baha'i who was originally uh, living in Germany, but they were displaced by the Nazi regime, and they went, her family moved to England, and she finished school there, I think high school there, and then on to U.S. nursing school. And she told, told me about Baha'u'llah. The person that told you about the Baha'i faith. Elsa Norton. So Elsa Norton, you said she was displaced from Germany. Can you well, explain what that well, was she, about? She was Jewish, and so the, her father was at a chemical factory in Cologne, but her family left Germany, and she moved to England. And then she came to the U.S., and she completed a nursing course. And that's where I met her. She was employed there as a nurse at the, in Texas, in Houston, at the, um, the Institute of Rehabilitation and Research. How did she introduce the Baha'i faith to you? We were talking as we, you meet people at your workplace, and we chatted when we would encounter each other at times. And then she said to me, I'd like for you to come over to my apartment because I want to do a watercolor painting of you. That was one of her talents. And so I agreed. And what was your reaction to what she told you about the Baha'i faith? Well, I had an inquiring mind. I was interested because I had been searching. My sister, my older sister and I, had gone to different churches and we were reading and doing other things beyond. I was following in the Methodist the family members that were in Houston, they were Methodist. That was my mom's religion. huh? But I still wanted to find out more about other things. And I liked to read, and I had read their search for God, which talked about other religions and what their major beliefs were. So I was prepared, and I was a seeker to find the truth I wanted to live by. So I got the book, Baha'u'llah and the New Era, is what she gave me. And that was exciting to me because there were things said that I had sort of wanted to be true, and then I heard them so clearly stated, and it seemed so validating to read it. And I remember how excited I would be at night when I would finish reading and tuck that book under my pillow and just was smiling. You know, it was good from the beginning. But I thought, oh, my friends are going to be excited. My family is. But they weren't. <laughs> so I'm, at that time, I was the only behind my family for a while. And what were some of the things that you read in that book, Baha'u'llah and the New Era, that were things that you were looking for? I know I like the main principles of the faith, the oneness of God, the oneness of religion. That sounded good to me. So did uh, the equality of men and women and basic educational uh, universally afforded to people. And those principles were wonderful. So I was very compatible with how I was feeling. I did not find anything offensive to me because I wasn't brought up where you had uh, contention about the religion. It was just everybody went to the same place and listened to the, the choir and the, the sermon uh, of the day that the uh, dean of the chapel gave, and he was a fascinating 
person to listen to and very, very interesting. So I just, I was just a prime subject for, for the faith. <laughs> you sort of indicated that your family was not so receptive to the idea of you becoming a Baha'i. Is that true? Well, they, they didn't accept it for themselves, but they did not keep me from going. They maybe would drag the feet and say, are you going to the meeting tonight? You know, because I, I was so excited about it, you know, mm-hmm. how enthusiastic you are as a new believer. We had the feast at night, and they wanted to make sure I was, because I was driving my car, and, you know, they didn't want me out at night by myself. In, at times, you know, where are you going? They, they were inquiring, and once my mom and my sister accompanied me and sat in the car until the Baha'is knew they were out there and they wouldn't have it. They had to come in and be seated within the house, you know. So my mom was a little reluctant. She inquired about the Baha'i faith to her brother and sister-in-law. And that was a good thing because they even went to their minister, who was a Methodist minister, and asked, asked about the Baha'i faith. And he says, all the Baha'is I know are good people. That was encouraging. But this aunt had herself an aunt who was a Baha'i in Los Angeles. She then had some acquaintance with it. It hadn't been too pleasing because her aunt had said that, given her example of candles and Christ was one of the candles, and at that time, my aunt wasn't ready to hear Christ not being elevated above everything, you know. But they did not say uh, anything that you can't be a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. And even the minister at the church where I attended says, you see what the people behave, how they behave. Do they live by what they say, you know? And that's what you find out about uh, a religion and what the people are doing. And he didn't discourage me from changing. And that was good. I didn't have the resistance that some people have within their family and community. So did you have any issues at all about Christ being special versus the other messengers of God? And Well, I had come up with, with the exclusive feeling about Christ, you know, because that's how you are taught about it in, most of the time. But it, but the reasonableness of the teachings just resolved that without it being difficult. Now, I do know when I was praying to make my decision about becoming a Baha'i, I was praying to Christ, you know, for the guidance, and it just seemed that it was accepted that I was, I was doing okay. It wasn't something that was like a strike of lightning, something, yes, but it was just a a gentle acceptance of my past. So this was while you were working as a physical therapist? Yes, because that's what I did for a life's career. I worked 40 years as a therapist. Very soon after I became a Baha'i, I was elected to the LSA. About the same time, when Shoghi Effendi died in 1957. And, you know, the Gordian was a significant figure in my life. For those listeners that aren't familiar with the history of the Baha'i faith, 
First of all, you mentioned LSA, and which stands for Local Spiritual Assembly. Could you explain to one who's not familiar with the organization of the Baha'i Faith what a local spiritual assembly is? Yes, a Baha'i community of a certain number, nine or more, can organize to be the body that guides the teaching and the protection of the little group that's called a local spiritual assembly. And they are the persons who serve on this assembly are elected by secret ballot, I guess I should say, because there's no no, uh, campaigning. People choose from the dictates of their heart who they think would be a good person to serve in this manner. And so once they're nine, you can have a joint declaration by all nine to have a local spiritual assembly. When the numbers are larger, then you have to vote of the num- of, to the number of nine members on the assembly. And then you had mentioned the person of Shoghi Effendi. So could you explain the historical well, figure of Shoghi Effendi? Shoghi Effendi, known as the guardian of the sea, was the person who was the... Um, guide and leader of the Baha'is at the time following the uh, passing of Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha. He was the grandson of Abdu'l-Baha, who was the son of Baha'u'llah. His English was perfect. You had to almost have a dictionary in hand so that you could make sure you were getting the right information right meaning of the words. He had been educated at Oxford and uh, had a great grasp of the English language. He also went to the American University in Lebanon and from there on to uh, England for his education. When did you become a Baha'i? What year did you become a Baha'i? In 1957. Uh, that's what, in August, and Shoghifendi died in November. So what was it about him that caused you to be to have him so uh, endeared in your heart? I liked the way he expressed things. It was a, a challenge to your academic understanding at times. It was like getting an education, how clearly he made things so that you felt everything was up to date. It was as if he had written it yesterday. He was so clear about what was happening and and clarified for you how things were, and you didn't have to speculate. How would you say becoming a Baha'i changed your perspective on life? Well, the focus became more on what life was about, how to look at it, how to see it as a growing, continually advancing and evolving state. You did not choose to be contented with just the material life. You understood how all things were one together, both your spiritual, physical, mental life. All of these things were one, even though they had certain perspectives that you could look into. It was very liberating to me not to have a small 
concepts about this creation. It just enlarged you. You had more space to wonder and, and be happy about. It changed your attitudes. You, you were not dwelling on difficulties as much. It increased your capacity to live more fully. Why didn't you dwell on difficulties? Because that is letting yourself spiral down. Because if you have the idea... For instance, I remember reading the hidden word that says, In my memorial being, I knew my love for thee, thus I have created of thee and have engraved upon thee mine image. It was like giving you a perspective of yourself that was so much more than you had before or had read about before. It's like you didn't have a, an identity crisis. If your creator would say that to you, if he had it revealed to you through his uh, manifestation, that just alters your perspective of people, yourself, and that's why you don't dwell on unpleasant things because you know that you're not up to perfect, but you know that you can work toward it. And others are doing the same thing. So you don't dwell on your imperfections and the problems that could burden you. Now, you said you were a physical therapist for 40 years? Yes. I got my certification as a physical therapist at UT, uh, University of Texas Medical Branch. And, you know, because it was a challenge to work as a physical therapy. The challenge of treating the patients and giving them the best that you could. Because at TIER, the theme was the pursuit of excellence. And they worked at it, I tell you. I, I never had better beginning of a job, I think, than to have it with the people who were my supervisors and medical directors. They were terrific. So I enjoyed that pace and that kind of uh, idea about the pursuit of excellence because I didn't want anybody to be less well cared for because they had me as a therapist. I wanted to give the best I could. I went back to school for a master's in physical therapy. I went to Stanford. And I chose that school because I loved the idea of Abdu'l-Bahar having been invited to come there. When he came here in 1912, that the, that the president was perceptive enough to invite him to come. I should tell you that I had married and had two children by the time I went there. Uh. My mom went with me. She was a widow, and so she went with me so that I could concentrate on the work I had to do, and she was there with the children. So we got an apartment that was in the married students' area called Stanford Village. It was an old army hospital we converted into apartments for students who had extensive stay that were getting MDs and PhDs and other things. That, But I was able to get accommodations there, and it was good for my girls. I had two girls. They were three and two, and they were 15 months apart. My husband stayed in Houston because he had his job, and he kept the home fires burning, so to speak, and we returned after that. And I was happy that my career was compatible with being a Baha'i. 
And how would you say that your career was compatible because in being a Baha'i? I was giving service to people, and I could do it as well as I could do it. You know, it was a challenge to do what I could do and to think about these people and to think of what really could serve them to improve them. And they responded because they would, they would request to have me a lot of times as their therapist. Once we got to know each other and we were observed doing our work, and so I had a, a very rewarding career responding to people who catastrophic illness because initially the thing I had mostly to treat were persons who had polio. But right then when I started, the stock vaccine came in and the, the director, medical director, said that they knew that, that, that polio was not going to be so widespread, and so they organized to treat people with catastrophic illnesses, ones that really were nearly overwhelming, and so we, we had very challenging patients uh, with neuromotor problems. I uh, had a son born uh, nine years after my daughters were born, and so I had three children, and it was important to me that they got a good Baha'i education, and so I worked as a person in summer schools and in my community in child education activities. After being in Houston for about 25 years, what I did is I went to American Samoa because they were just building the Samoan Temple. Uh, the foundation was barely there. My son was there with me and my girls had were going off to college. And so my son and I went to uh, Samoa. We were there, and my mother joined us later. And at that time, she fell and broke her hip. And we had a pinning on the island of Samoa, but it didn't hold. And we were transferred to Honolulu. I was with her to have a total hip replacement. And then I got, I was recruited for a job that the University of Hawaii's medical school had to upgrade rehab in the American Pacific, and I was on a team of rehab personnel that was making establishing rehab clinics in American territories and trust territories, former trust territories, Micronesia. You know where that is? I know it's in the Pacific. Yeah, it's, it's about 10 degrees uh, north of the equator. And then we would go to Guam and Saipan and... and uh, serve and set up clinics there. There were about nine of them in the capital cities. But this was a job that Baha'i would dream to have because I had an opportunity to meet people of the islands that were Baha'is in the Marshall Islands, in Guam, in Yap, in Palau, all of those beautiful islands in the Pacific. We went there, and I had enough time after work and on the weekends, because we stayed for, you know, sometimes up to four to five weeks at a time to set up the clinics and get it started and teach the persons who were assigned to be the personnel in those clinics. And it was quite an absorbing job. Even in American Samoa, sometimes I'd work with the youth and children's classes there, and I participated in the same things 
on the different islands. It's easy on small islands to commute around because we were given our cars to, to use during our training sessions because we had to go into the villages. Because there were people who were in the uh, schools who were working with the uh, developmental delayed, the college requested that we have this course for their special ed teachers and persons who worked in the voc rehab and other things to be ex- instructed in rehabilitation techniques and procedures that would be helpful in managing the physical and mobility of the, their students. So we did things like that. We did a course like that at the community college in Ponape, the islands of Ponape. That was good because they were so receptive, and that's when you enjoy it, when people really want to learn because they really want to help them, their, their clients, you know, and their patients. That's why I say it was a very rewarding experience for me to be in that hands-on kind of job all this time. I liked that. It was not the written and lecture kind of thing. It was getting in there and doing it. So I was in, in the Pacific for 10 years, four in Samoa and six with Hawaii based and then traveling to these different islands. Okay. But before you go on, Mary, can you tell me a little bit of your experience being in American Samoa for four years? What was, what was it like for you? Samoans are very friendly. You know, people on the islands are closely connected. You know, they, they know when you're there, you're new on the islands. Because there's that, that many, well, I'm black, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I was not the usual person they saw, huh? But some of them thought, because I'm not that brown, I'm brown, but not very dark. And so they'd think I was a Samoan many a day when I was on their little Ainga buses, which is uh, often the, it's the name for the transportation set up by innovative members of the community. They'd refurbish a truck and make it so that it was like a bus with wooden benches and you could get on there, and they'll take you back and forth from village to village. When you wanted to go to shop and get groceries or do other things, you could use the Ainga buses. So it was, you know, like they accepted you in the community pretty well, and I enjoyed that. And my son had the hardest time because he had to go to school there, and they are, in the school system, they are rather harsh. They even have rules they carry because they hit children. And Michael wasn't accustomed to that kind of thing coming out of the American school system. But he managed. What I observed was that he became a central person in our little village where we lived because, first of all, I got a tetherball set up, and then I got a ping-pong table set up, and the children would come to play. And he became kind of a central figure and so he came back and to his father to get to get back into the American school system. And when he was leaving, his friends were clinging to the car, saying, "You better come back! You better come back, Mike." His name is Michael, and they wanted to make sure they hadn't lost Michael from their lives. I didn't tell you very much about Hawaii. I lived on Oahu, which is the main island, but it's not the largest, for four years, 
And the two things that I thought were significant was that the the high youth of Maui were invited to be part of the reception of a group of Russian youth who came to Maui under the auspices of Youth Ambassadors. That organization was sponsored by an American group. I remember the two that were involved with the Hawaii experience. The Maui youth were so outgoing and welcoming to the Russian youth who came under the youth ambassadors' auspices that the youth ambassadors asked the Hawaiians if they couldn't come to Russia. And this was accepted. We had funds and we raised money so that youth could come to could travel in what was called World Peace Tour, and it occurred in 1989. At that time, Gorbachev was the Russian leader, and the Berlin Wall had fallen a couple of weeks before we got there. So it was really an interesting time to be there. What happened was that we included, other than youth from the island of Hawaii, from the Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S., and England, and that was a tremendous experience because the Russians were so welcoming to us. They put on a great shows for us and cultural and served us up so wonderfully well, and the youth were very impressive to them, and it was just wonderful to be there. That was a high point. They had been under such tight existence. The Russians were able to invite the youth to live in their homes for a couple of nights during our visit. The youth had a wonderful time. They had to be careful, they said, when they admired something because they would give it to them. And these people were not living very well compared to U.S. standards, but their generosity was overwhelming. And they were so pleased that we were there. Then we went to Kazan, which is about 300 miles further east into Russia, and returned back to the U.S. It was a good thing. I did leave Avahi and go to the Indian Reservation, Navajo land, in Four Corners, which is a part of, in the area of northeast Arizona is where I was. And I was working with children with developmental delays, again, as a physical therapist, because they were starting a new program there. And uh, Nabi, the Native American Baha'i Institute, within the coast enough to go back and forth there and participate in uh, Baha'i activities there and Baha'i summer schools and, and work with the children's classes in that. And, and how long were you there? Seven years. While I was there... They had this sister-to-sister activity that was a national thing, national Baha'i thing. The purpose of it was for the black American to go see their black sisters in Africa. That's a very crude way of saying it, but it was a different thing. And it was out of Chicago that the organization started. So what was it like in Africa? Ah, Kenya was wonderful. It's beautiful. It's such a physically beautiful. If you want to know, I have enjoyed the oceans, the mountains, and 
all that great beauty that each of those locations I have been in afforded. Walking in the village and people came to see who we were and invited us into their homes and we told them who we were. And some Baha'i had brought seeds to be given to the people there and they were so appreciative of it at that one family because he was going all he could in a sparse little land that he had for the good of his family. Because people like to see people from other countries, and they have come more likely than if it's just amongst them, themselves who are in the village, you know. After I retired, I went back to Africa in Swaziland and was there for a couple of years, but I came back and forth briefly when I was there in Swaziland. I was there to be sort of like a custodian of someone who was assessing how the property Baha'i school was on, a Baha'i school for preschool children. And it was also a conference area for Baha'i youth. They had a couple of dormitories, and then they had the building where the school was. I was there in Flatakuru, which is a very high place, mountainous, very cool. Had to have wood burning fire stove, and it was interesting, kind of isolated. Then I went to Pigs Peak, which was another community where we were able to be with the people there. Then I was going to stay longer, but I came back to Texas where my sister and her child was, and uh, 9 11 occurred. And my sister was single mom, and things were not so good for her, and I stayed. So you've been back in Texas now for about nine or ten years? Mm-hmm. My sister became very ill, and she died. Then I had surgery, and I recuperated pretty well. One of my daughters who's here in Odessa, Texas, on the faculty of Texas Tech, Medical School, which is a branch of the one in Lubbock, Texas. So you think your traveling days are over? Not really, Mm -hmm. because I am wanting to do a social economic development project in my community and beyond. I really want to do something here that we can take other places. And I have my three musketeer friends, Diana Hudson, Joanne Marion, and uh, Jeanette coffee, and we want to do something. Anything in particular? Yes. It's in response to Adubahar's words that says, mankind has three challenges in common for his well-being. There are ignorance, poverty, and disease. And there are things that can be done locally and we want to make some interactions with people of other countries already. My friend Diana has someone in Ethiopia that she's going to work with. She lived in China and had a couple of schools that she and her son developed, but now she's in California, which is her home. There's just that in our hearts that we want to do this sort of thing, but we have to get it together since we are dispersed. One of us is in Maine, and I'm here in Texas, and another is in uh, Arizona, 
and another in California, but we want to work together somehow because we were once all together in Samoa and Hawaii. Well, Mary, I am really impressed with all the traveling you did and all the experience that you have. You've really had a full life, and you still have more to do. I thank you for asking me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mary Helen Brown, a retired physical therapist who ended up traveling all over the world after becoming a Baha'i. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
this wronged one is beyond compare or equal. We have borne it all with the utmost willingness and resignation so that the souls of men may be edified and the word of God be exalted. My grief exceedeth all the woes to which Jacob gave vent, and all the afflictions of Job are but a part of my sorrows. We
little butterfly comes down to remind me the way it whispers on the breeze. All this weight I carry around deep inside me makes it harder to fly free. So fly, little one, fly. You're the answer to the prayers of every saint that longed to die. No earthly things on your clean, tiny wings, made only of virtue and the sky. So fly, little one, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.